0: All right, if you have your Bible apps on your phones, you can take them out now. Um, I'm going to read from Genesis 3, 1 through 23. It's a long one, so bear with me. The snake was the most intelligent of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, we may eat the fruit of the garden's trees, but not the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. God said, don't eat from it and don't touch it or you will die. The snake said to the woman, you won't die. God knows that on the day you eat from it, you will see clearly and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was beautiful with delicious food and that the tree could provide wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then they both saw clearly and knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made garments for themselves. During that day's cool evening breeze, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the Lord God in the middle of the garden's trees. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? The man replied, I heard your sound in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate. I'm glad you caught that. (laughs) The Lord God said to the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the snake tricked me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the snake, because you did this, you are the one cursed. Out of all the farm animals, out of all the wild animals, on your belly you will crawl, and dust you will eat every day of your life. I will put contempt between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. They will strike your head and you will strike at their heels. To the woman he said, I will make your pregnancy very painful. In pain you will bear children. You will desire your husband and he will rule over you. To the man he said, because you listened to your wife's voice and you ate from the tree that I commanded, don't eat from it. Cursed is the fertile land because of you. In pain you will eat from it every day of your life. Weeds and thistles will grow for you, even as you eat the field's plants. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread until you return to the fertile land, since from it you were taken. You are soil to the soil you will return. The man named his wife Eve, because she is the mother of everyone who lives. The Lord God made the man in his, and his wife leather clothes and dressed them. The Lord God said, the human being has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, so he doesn't stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to farm the fertile land from which he was taken. Yeah, it's a pretty heavy start to the morning. I apologize for that. But it's a good message, I promise. So then you were just talking about these fun projects that you all did when you were growing up, right? I remember one project that we gave the kids from Kid Stuff. When I started uh, working for the church, I started working at Kid Stuff, which is our children's ministry where all these kids disappeared off to downstairs in the basement. And I don't remember what the story was or what the verse we were that we were doing, but I remember the activity. And the activity was that uh, had to do with the lesson that we were teaching that God wanted us to soften their hearts. soften our hearts. And so the activity was that they had two heart cutouts and one was to represent a soft heart and the other one was to represent a hard heart. So they had to cover the soft heart in white cotton balls and the hard heart in uncooked black beans. Now I'm not going to go into the racially charged message (laughs) an activity like that invokes, right, because it's subtle. What are we telling kids when we tell them that God wants you to have white soft hearts that are like cotton balls and not hardened black hearts? It's pretty messed up. And I can tell you many, many examples of those comparisons as I was growing up that I had to filter through even as a children's ministry director. I can go on and on about that if you want to meet up with me. We can have coffee and I can go on and on about it. But that's not what we're going to talk about this morning. Instead, this morning, what I want to talk about is the message that we receive when we are told that our hearts, our bodies, and our entire being are flawed from the start. That like these kids were taught, that we start out with a hardened heart and that we must change in order to be loved and accepted by God. I mean, thankfully, when we were teaching that lesson, the kids were smarter than that. They, say, they scrapped the whole idea of having two hearts and they said they wanted to make just the one heart and they had bits of cotton balls and bits of, of uncooked beans and they said, you know, sometimes my heart is hard and sometimes it's soft but God loves me anyway. They got it. They were four years old and they got the message and see but we teach this to kids, right, when we point out all their flaws and all their mistakes. We teach this to kids, and it's a pretty hard message to shake when you grow up with that message, when you grow up being told that you are flawed. And I hear this message being echoed by adults. I was, uh, when I was writing this message, I was scrolling through Facebook, and going down my Facebook, I saw someone had put on their status, God loves everyone, in capitals. And then I clicked on the comment section, never click on the comment section. Nothing good can come from clicking on the comment section. The wisdom of Jonathan S. Williams, I believe. He's the one who said it first. Yeah, so I clicked on it, and sure enough, someone said, well, God doesn't love everyone. There's some people that have done such awful things in this world that they don't deserve the love of God. They have to earn the love of God. They have to earn it like how a human will has to earn the love of someone else, or like how we have to earn the love of our pets. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty ridiculous, right? The audacity that someone has to write something like that. But if I'm honest, and I'm sure if some of you here are too, you might have thought that at one point in your walk. At some point in your life, you thought, wow, there's some people here that really just don't deserve God's love. They are beyond redemption. And then you start thinking, well, how bad is bad? What constitutes as being beyond redemption? Then, when you start evaluating people that way, you have—you start to look at yourself and you think, "Well, am I that bad? Are there things that I've done that are beyond redemption? What's the worst thing that I've done?" And then you don't tell people what you've done because you're afraid. What if what I've done is their description or their definition of beyond redemption? So you hide in shame. You separate yourself from them. And then if you grew up in church, you might have thought, oh, you know what, we're all sinners. You, know, you might have been taught that. We're all sinners, we all sin, we can't help it because this is the way that we were born. You might have been shown an illustration that looks something like this that's going to come up soon, where you are separated from God and it's sin that separates you. And that, that is as a result of Adam eating of the fruit of the tree of good and evil that because he ate that fruit, we are now all cursed. You might have also been told, and I know that some of you did because you all chuckled when I read that part, that it was actually Eve's fault. And she was the reason why we're all doomed now and cursed. I'm not gonna go into that mess either this morning. But basically, Adam ate of the fruit, and because of that, we are banished from the Garden of Eden and thus separated from God, which is what this image shows. That doctrine, is called original sin. And that is the belief that in our natural state, just in our being, we are infected with sin. That by nature, we are corrupt. And just so you know, this doesn't come from the Bible at all. No other religion teaches this. Not even the ones that share the same stories of Genesis that we do. They don't interpret Genesis the same way. Jesus never taught this, and the early church didn't teach this. So then, where does this come from? This doctrine comes from uh, a bishop in the fourth century. His name is Augustine. And his, his interpretation of Genesis is what influenced Martin Luther. And the reason why I'm mentioning this right now is because Martin Luther greatly influenced and shaped how we see Western Christianity today. So this focus on sin We we begin to build our faith focusing on sin. But when we focus on sin and we read the Bible through the eyes that we are inherently sinful, it begins to discolor everything that we read. We start to see the cross differently. We start to see salvation differently. We see our bodies differently because we see it as bodies not to be trusted because they're riddled with sin, like a disease. And I'm not saying that sin isn't real. I'm not dismissing the gravity of sin. We see sin everywhere. We see sin in in poverty, in injustice. We see sin in war and in abuse. And as Jonathan mentioned earlier, we see sin in human trafficking. But the problem is that when we interpret sin and believe that we are inherently sinful, then we believe the sin that we are struggling with is irrevocable. It's something that we can never change that it's inevitable, because we can't change, we're born with this, we're flawed, we're vile, corrupt human beings. And then our faith becomes focused on this nature, on this part of us that we see as worthless, that we see we begin fo- to focus on our imperfections, on our total depravity. We, and if you don't believe me, you can read books about this. You read books from great Christian authors that talk about our worthlessness. I hear preachers preaching this message of our worthlessness. Songs sung about us being unworthy of God's love. And what happens is when we consume all of this, we begin to worship a God whom we believe sees us that way, as unworthy. Our faith then becomes reduced to the need to be saved from our own sins. The need for just personal salvation alone. Did anyone here go to youth group? Show of hands, who went to youth group? All right, quite a few of us. A couple at the top there, I can barely see you, but I know you're there. So when I went to youth group, I had to do this thing where I had to, we all did, had to come up with this like 30 second elevator speech on how to evangelize to someone. Did anyone do anything like that? <laughs> Just, yeah, okay, good, <laughs> not totally foreign. So there's this, there was always this scenario and it was always the same thing. It was always that you were on a plane, and the plane was about to crash. And you had to turn to the person next to you, and you had to preach the good news to them so that they would accept Jesus in their hearts, so that they would be able to go to heaven if the plane crashed and we all died. Yes, true story. And it was that kind of fear that was driven in me every week that I went to went a to youth group and I was also told that you have to, you better pray for forgiveness on your way home because what if you get hit by a bus on your way home and then you die, can you be guaranteed your seat in heaven? And it was that same kind of fear that that pressured me into needing to convert my parents and this awful guilt and responsibility I had to convert my parents who weren't Christians and I remember um, I was by my dad's bedside he was on his deathbed, literally at the hour of his death and I rang my youth pastor looking for some words of comfort right and he tells me Mary you know what you need to do you need to pray for his soul you need to pray that his soul will get to heaven because he's about to die that's what you need to do right now and those were not the words I needed to hear that day. The, I didn't need to think about my dad dying and, and whether or not his soul was going to heaven. I just really needed to be comforted that time. That's not salvation. Salvation, when we speak of it in that manner, in, in just entry into heaven, we limit salvation to to something short-term. We limit the long-lasting transformation that comes with the power of the salvation of Jesus. And all these things that that I talked about, those are all just scare tactics. They they don't, they're traumatizing too, not to mention. They don't produce long-term change, they only produce short-term change. We also then, we don't see our sin, we don't take our sin seriously. We, we, become, we, don't, we aren't accountable to our actions because we think, you know what, this is just something that I'm born with. I can't help it. Sin is inevitable. We blame our nature. And to me, it's a total cop-out. The definition of sin that I like to use is the one that says that sin is when we miss the mark of the glory of God. When our actions miss the mark. Our actions is sin. If we believe that sin is inevitable, that frees us from taking responsibility, right? It frees us from doing the good work to really change our behavior, and it frees us from earnestly seeking forgiveness. Salvation in Jesus calls for radical transformation. It's not a quick fix, not a short change. It's not a quick prayer that will guarantee us entry into heaven, it's long-term radical transformation, and it's not just about the afterlife. We can't limit our faith to just personal salvation or to just getting into heaven. Our God is so much bigger than that. Jesus came for reasons much bigger than that. And when we read Genesis and we only focus on sin, then we're missing out on the message that God is trying to tell us, and that is that we are God's beloved that we are God's creation, that we were created as part of this great, grand, marvelous universe. But we miss that. We miss it completely when we focus just on our sin. But I want to worship the God who made this amazing universe, who created me that is this big. Somehow I work with this great universe that works together so intricately and so beautifully and uniquely, That's the God that I want to worship. In Genesis 1, 26, it says, then God said, let us make humanity in our image to resemble us so that they may take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds in the air, the livestock, all the earth, and all the crawling things on earth. God created us in their image. Nothing else on earth was created in that way. Yes, we see God's fingerprint in everything we see around us, but humanity, Only humanity was created in God's divine image. And when God created us, God breathed life into us. That's what it says. And the cool thing I discovered is I went back to look up what the Hebrew word was for the word beloved. And in the Old Testament, two words are used. One word means to long for. And the second is breath. And that's powerful. God breathed life into us. And therefore, we are the very definition of God's beloved. And we didn't stop being God's beloved after we rebelled. God didn't stop caring about Adam and Eve. When they sewed figs of leaves together to cover themselves, God replaced them with garments made of leather. Leather is expensive. You're supposed to laugh at that. (laughs) (laughs) But God never left them, God never stopped caring for them. God didn't stop caring for them when, when Cain and Abel were born. When Cain and Abel actually committed the first sin, God didn't stop loving them. God didn't disappear after Noah and Moses and Abraham came. God was there with them and has been there from the beginning. But the problem is that all this time, our faith has been grounded in the doctrine of original sin. And when we do that, it forces us to begin with the notion that we are separate from God, that we are flawed, that we are diseased with sin. And so then our minds and our bodies cannot be trusted, that we are unworthy of God's shame. Now when we see that, that sounds to me like Brene Brown's definition of shame, which I'll read right now. It is. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. That's where our faith starts from. Faith that's grounded in original sin starts from shame. And so then everything we see is seen through the lens of shame. Everything we experience is through shame. We are motivated not by love, but by shame and then shame sneaks up on us when we look in the mirror in the morning and see our flaws. Shame sneaks up on us when we're battling with our mental and physical health. Shame sneaks up on us when we're not doing well at work, when we yell at our kids, when, when, we, get, when we are touched the wrong way, when we experience trauma after trauma, when we are stereotyped. The message that we receive when we experience all these things is that is that we're unworthy of anything more than this. We're unworthy of blessings from God. And so what do we do? We hide. We hide our true selves because we feel ashamed. We hide who we are and we feel that we're unworthy of commune with God and unworthy of commune with one another. And that's what Adam and Eve did. They hid from God. They hid themselves and they placed a barrier between themselves and God each other as well. But in Genesis 3, 21, it says that God clothed them. God lovingly clothed Adam and Eve in garments of leather. Just like your parent lovingly clothed you as a child. Just like someone will lovingly drape a jacket over your shoulders when you're cold. Just like you lovingly pull a blanket over yourself when you're cold. God lovingly covers us we are God's beloved, and we don't choose this. We don't ask this of God, it's just who we are. God does this because we are God's creation. It says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made in Psalm one thirty one, 139, and that we are created in the image of God in Genesis 127. Our souls are formed for eternal glory and greatness, Romans eight, and that's what we miss when we skip Genesis 1 and 2 and only focus on Genesis 3. That's what we miss when we see our origin story as original sin, but creation didn't happen in Genesis 3. Creation didn't begin with original sin. If we look at the creation story, we will see that our creation story is actually full of goodness and blessings. When God created the world, every day God ended it by saying, it is good. For five days, God said, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then on the sixth day, when God created humankind, God said, it is very good. That goodness speaks of God's blessings. The Bible says when God created the creatures of the sea and the land and the sky, the Bible says that God blessed them. The Bible says that when God created humankind, The Bible says that God blessed them. And then on the seventh day, when God looked over all their creation and saw how magnificent it all was and how beautiful it was, God rested and said, let's make this day holy. Let's bless this day. Our origin story is covered in goodness and in blessings. And we forget that. And Jesus had to come to remind us of that. In Matthew 5, people gathered to hear Jesus speak in what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. And we don't know, Jesus didn't know who those people were. He didn't know what their story was, what they have or haven't done. He didn't know anything about them. But still, he spoke blessings over them. He said, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. Jesus didn't say, blessed are you if you repent, blessed are you if you follow. Jesus didn't say, blessed are you if your kid behaves. Blessed are you if you get promoted, or if you get into college, or if you finish your degree. Blessed are you if you get married. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses three to five, and I'm gonna read the message version because it's written so beautifully. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. And this is one I love. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart put right. Then you see God in the outside world. God is there when you're at the end of your rope. God is there when you've lost someone and when you're grieving. Those things don't happen because you're separate from God. Those things don't happen because we've chosen to sin or, or our actions fall short of the glory of God. Those things, bad things don't happen to us because of our sinful nature or because we are separate from God. They don't happen because we haven't done enough to earn God's blessings. They don't happen because we don't believe that we are not worthy of belonging. In times of time of trial, of, in times of pain and trial, we are blessed and we are loved and we need to accept and believe that, and accept our status of beloved. We need to walk with that in mind and believe that we are as brilliant as the rest of God's creation. We were born to manifest God's calling, God's glory, and that has always been our calling, to be who we were created to be, not to be flawed, broken, or full of shame. Because when we see ourselves that way, we begin to see other people that way as well. And so we need to change our view of one another and that way we can also change our worldview. This will invite us into connection with one another, which is what God's true intention was when God created the universe. Connection with one another, that's how we work together harmoniously and beautifully. It's in this connection. It's in seeing that we are all God's beloved. No one misses out on this. God's love covers everyone. And then when we can live out our true self, then we want that of, the, uh, of people around us. We want them to connect with their divine image within them. So then when we go back to that lesson at kids' Stuff, when we go back to that, what kind of message are we sending kids when we're telling them that they are rotten at the core? When we keep pointing out their flaws, and their mistakes? What kind of lesson are we telling them when we say that their heart is hard, that they're flawed and full of sin and unworthy of God's love? Wouldn't it be better to tell them from the beginning that they are God's creation? One of my favorite verses in the Bible is is this. It's from Matthew 19, 14. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. What if we taught them this? What if we taught them the kingdom of God belongs to you because you are God's child? That God took special attention in creating creating you to be just like them, to be just like God's divine image? What if we told them that they are beloved, that they belong, and that they matter? What if we came to believe that identity for ourselves? What if we weren't beaten, or broken into shame and submission? What if we were told from the start that we were loved? That we weren't told that we won't ever amount to anything because of all the mistakes that we'd made? Or that we weren't man enough or woman enough because we didn't behave a certain way? Or what if we were told that it wasn't our fault for all the trauma that we had experienced? If you're watching the news this week, You might have heard about Cyntoia Brown. Cyntoia Brown is a woman who spent the last 15 years in prison for being wrongfully convicted of killing a man who had bought her body for sex. She was 16 years old at the time. She had been trafficked by a pimp called... His name was Cutthroat. Yeah, right? This person told her, her pimp told her, you were born a whore. No one will ever want you except for me. Earlier this week, I went to a breakfast that the city put together for the survivors and victims of human trafficking. And one of the survivors shared their story in spoken word, and they said these words. No longer do I have to justify the actions of my oppressor. The world saw these survivors and these victims of human trafficking as flawed and as beyond redemption. And because the world saw them that way, they too justified what had happened to them because they believed themselves to be unworthy of more. And when we believe that about them, we are marginalizing people who are the most vulnerable in society, people who are victims to economic injustices, to racial injustice, gender inequality, just to name a few. And they go completely against what we value in our church. Our values in this church are generosity, anti-racism, and in fostering community, in our work that we do in community. That is salvation. Salvation is, and not limited to, the transformation that takes place when we do the action Undo the unjust treatment of those marginalized in our community. That's what salvation is. When in the, in seeing the divine in us, the divine image in us, we see that of them as well. We want them to connect with their divine image inside. We want, we see them blessed, and so we see that we want them to flourish and live life abundantly. It's not just about personal salvation, it's not just about us. And we do the good work to make that happen. Salvation is also when we desire embracing life, abundant life, and when we desire flourishing. And I know that there's probably some of us sitting here this morning, and you're wondering, what is this abundant life that you speak of? What is this flourishing? I don't believe that. I've never seen it. I've never experienced it. You might be sitting here wondering, why is it that I've never experienced this? Is it because I'm full of shame? Is it because I haven't done enough? I haven't prayed enough? I'm not a good enough Christian? Is it because I don't deserve it? You might be questioning God's love for you because you, of all the awful things that have happened in your life. And so I, I wanna encourage you this morning to reimagine your identity as beloved and blessed. God is calling you and your inner child this morning, calling you out of hiding, out of shame, and into God's abundant life, into experiencing the truth that you are beautiful, you are worthy, you are human beings that have been created in the divine image of God, and you always have been. It doesn't matter what you can or you can't do, what you have or haven't achieved. You are loved. It doesn't matter what combination of cotton balls or uncooked beans your heart makes. You are loved. That in fact, you are the very definition of God's beloved. Let's pray. Dear God, sometimes I find that when writing these words and reading the Bible, it's so, it can come so easy to say, yes, we are your beloved. We are blessed. We are covered in your love and you do care for us. But sometimes, God, it's really hard to see that connection. It's really hard to believe that in our hearts and really hard to walk in that. So I ask this morning, God, that you show each and every person in this room their true identity, the truth of whom you created them to be, and ask that you crown them with glory this morning, and that they go out this week, and they see that of themselves and see that of one another. In your name we pray, amen.